Hello and welcome to Dream Life Best Fit Role with me, Nikki Smith. I'm a psychologist, a career change coach and a strengths coach. I believe that everybody can love their work and I help people to use their natural strengths to transform their work life and love their job. These podcast episodes shine a light on my clients and other inspiring individuals who have created their dream life best fit role or business. I focus on how they play to their natural strengths, those activities that energize and inspire them. I also focus on how they've conducted mini experiments to take the fear out of change and generate momentum. Hello, I'm very happy to have Jay Brown with me today. Welcome, Jabe. Oh, Nikki, thank you so much for uh, for having me on. And I, I do hope we're able to talk about some interesting things today. So my name's Jay Brown and uh, I do functional medicine, which is probably a whole conversation itself, but really essentially is about trying to help people figure out how to get the best out of their health. Uh, often my patients are complex um, with their health conditions and so my job's being a little bit like detective. And I came to this for a big story. Do we want to do the origin story now or do you want to? We totally want to do the origin story. Right, let's yeah. do that. Right. So I didn't realize this except until in retrospect, I, I kind of realized it. In my early years, um, younger 20, I was dating someone and uh, she was the one for me, Nikki. Oh, it was meant to be first true love, all that kind of stuff. And then um, she broke up with me. <laughs> that was the first, I think, kind of serious what for at the time it was kind of that was adversity for me, and I um kind of spiraled down into what for me was a relatively dark place, but actually in retrospect was just kind of breakup stuff. And I kind of went low, and then I started to pull myself out of it. And so I'm reading books about sort of Anthony Robbins stuff and motivation, and I've got affirmations all over the wall. And then I'm reading about health and diets and all this kind of stuff. Massively into it, that became my focus. Kind of got to the point where my mates had just about pay me to shut up and stop trying to solve their problems. And then it kind of occurred to me that, wait, this could actually be a thing. I could actually do this. And then I so went off and started naturopathy. The irony of it is, is that the girl that I was in a relationship was was a naturopath. And at that time, she'd be saying, oh, you've got to have your vegetables. I'm like, potato chips, that's made from potatoes. Potatoes are vegetables, so I didn't want to have a bar of it and then uh, ended up doing it. And I'm sure there's some kind of psychology in play there, but I haven't quite gotten to the bottom of it. That's the reason I think I, I do what I, what I do now is because of my own, I suppose, uh, challenges. And I think that's probably a pretty common thing amongst practitioners and healers, we get into things to solve our own problems. And so there was that for me and then um, and celiac disease and some own health um, problems. And then and I've just run with it and I'm loving it. I love hearing that. And it's also especially fun for me to hear, Jay, because when I met you, you were in full throttle health mode and to hear that you thought a potato chip was a valid vegetable <laughs> some time ago <laughs> is very amusing to me. I love it. It is often how we, we discover what's for us, solving a problem for ourselves that is a problem for other people as well. Absolutely. Yeah, sure. Let's dive into, into some of the tips and goodness that you know from functional medicine and naturopathy. Most people who come to me have been overworking for a period of time. They're feeling a bit fed up or a bit trapped in their current work role. And typically when people overwork, they either trade off on their health or relationships. So there's usually some, whether it's anxiety or they're not moving their body as much as they could. So naturally there's a ripple effect into their kind of health and vitality. So I'd love to hear from you. What do you want to talk about today in terms of our health and what's in our control? 
So it's your life. You are in control. And we often don't recognize that we are. And I think that that's often because we outsource our yeses to the world. And so to borrow from a book that I love by Greg McCowan called Essentialism that I recommend to patients all the time. And it's basically a big old book to learn how to say no. And what tends to happen is that we engage with the world in such a way that we take on obligations and, and commitments, not because we love to do it, but because we feel obligated to do it somehow. And over decades, that results in living a life that it perhaps wasn't one that, that you would choose. And so time really is the problem there because for every yes, by necessity, there has to be a corresponding no. And so if you say yes to a whole bunch of stuff that perhaps really isn't what you really want, then you're saying no to yourself. And so if you want to prioritize your health, well, that means saying no to all of the things or some of the things that you were doing before that, that cause it to be a problem. So you've got, to, you've got to create the time and you actually have to prioritize it. So for a lot of people who find themselves in that situation, that they need to have a look, have a look at their life and you know, figure out what do they really want? If you were starting again, what would you be doing? And, you know, obviously that's where they come and see you. But from a health perspective, it's just about recognizing that health is important. You only get your health once and we don't tend to value it until we lose it. And that's most often when patients come to me, it's kind of like, oh, I've been running on the, on the rat wheel for, for my entire life. And, uh, and now I'm, things are starting to go wrong with my health. And how do I get back to being who I was? And I think it's probably often the wrong question because what you were doing that led you to where you are now probably wasn't sustainable to begin with. And so the better question is, how can I, what should I be doing to be living the life that I want? And what does that look like for my health? Everyone's going to have a different answer on that. And so for some people, it's take a bunch of stresses off their plate. And so they've got more room to prioritize their health. And other people, it's about, no, no, I actually kind of like what it is that I'm doing now. I just need to figure out how to get more out of, out of my body and my health and prioritize um, that. And then that becomes about, well, if you want to work hard, then you need to rest hard. You need to prioritize the down as much as you do the up. And the reasoning on that, and I'm probably going to have a bit of a ramble here, so stop me anytime I'm getting a little bit too in depth on this. Sure. Um, but the human body has this thing called the autonomic nervous system. And the autonomic nervous system basically is the automatic functionings of the body. The things that you're not doing, like you're not dilating your pupils or doing your sweat or beating your heart, those things are beyond your control. And there are two branches on that. The first is the sympathetic nervous system. And this is the one we're all familiar with. It's kind of like lion jumps out. When a lion jumps out, whatever you were doing before, it doesn't matter anymore. It makes no difference. 100% of your attention goes to running away from that lion that becomes the most important thing. And so sympathetic nervous system is about fight and flight. It's about immediate survival. But the other side of the, the autonomic nervous system is the parasympathetic nervous system. And that's where you do all of your rest, digest, reproduce, and repair. It's the future survival stuff. And the balance between those two is a little bit like a seesaw. You, you can't be running away from a lion and sleeping at the same time. It doesn't work like that. And so what happens is we get sucked into the mode or the default mode of being in the sympathetic nervous system because we've got FOMO and we try and pack our lives with as much stuff as we can and we work hard and we get away with it for a while because the body is designed to, to be in that mode to help you survive. But when that goes on for decades, then kind of your body can't do that anymore. And while it's not a problem being in that sympathetic nervous system, there's a cost. 
the cost of being in the sympathetic is that you're not in the parasympathetic. And then things start to go wrong with the body that are the domain of the parasympathetic. So it's things like your, your rest, your sleep, you can't do it very well. And then your digestion, things start happening with the gut. You get low energy. We might have sex hormone problems. We must, might start having immune system problems and, you know, and fatigue and autoimmunity and inflammation. And what as humans in today's world, we tend to do is we tend to say, oh, you know, I've got this inflammation problem. How do I solve that? And I've got this fatigue problem. How do I solve that? And we look at each of those things as the problem and they're not. More often than not, they're the symptom. And they're the symptom of the body not having had the ability to pay attention to it. The body is busy running away from lions. Who cares about what happens to lunch? If you don't digest lunch and then tomorrow you've got a little bit of indigestion, we'll call it a win. We got away from the lion. But then you're not supposed to be running away from a lion for 10 years. And then that compounds. And this is where the majority of what I see in terms of chronic health problems build up. And it's because we haven't been prioritizing that parasympathetic. So what we need to do is prioritize it, get back into the parasympathetic. And what that means is being with the body, being present, being grounded, being aware. But that stuff isn't something that you trip over and you, you accidentally find your way to it, or it's a natural talent. That stuff, like everything else, is a skill. It's just a skill that most of us have never learnt, never prioritised because we gain our validation from success and achievement and self-sacrifice and, and, and doing an amazing amount of stuff and we get away with it so we never question whether it's right. Then once you realise that and that, that what's lacking is the time just being, then there's a huge skill gap and so it needs a huge amount of investiture of, of effort to get there. And so this is the standard stuff that everyone knows like the meditation and the breathing, the mindfulness, the yoga, all these sorts of things, but change the mentality from I'm doing this thing because I need to relax now, or I tried meditation and I was no good at it. So I didn't do it anymore. It doesn't work for me. It's kind of like saying, well, I tried riding a bike once and I fell off. So I decided I'd never go and ride a bike again. And it's building up skills in those areas. And then that progressively becomes more of a default. You don't need to think about these things and then your body starts to repair, take care of all of the business that it hasn't been taken care of, and you're good. And that, to me, I think that is by far and away the most important conversation that I'm having with patients and the thing that makes the most difference, but it's the thing that no one wants to hear. What we all want to hear is what's the magic health hack for getting, uh, for, for getting more energy and for fixing up sleep or for fixing my gut. We want the quick magic fix. And it's not about that. It's about get the body back into balance. Then maybe it'll start working for you. And so your health challenges, think of them really as symptoms and try and go a step up and figure out what might be causing those. And you know, I mean, I'm the functional medicine guy. And so that's, that's why I, I believe that sort of stuff. But I just find that, that those very, very basic things make a huge, huge, huge difference for most people. So, Jabe, that's such a helpful grounding in what we need to think about. So let's get into some practical terms of, of how to show up and do this. Okay. So in order to do this, I need to, um, I need to take a, a, a minor detour for a second, and that's talking about something that I'm sure you're all over and, uh, and your listeners have, have heard of, and that's neuroplasticity. Um, it's neuroplasticity. Uh, it's basically saying, hey, 
the brain's more like plastic than metal. It's not fixed. You can change it. And as a human, you know this because you can learn stuff, right? Um, and, but we don't tend to think about how we can use our brains more effectively for, for change. And so your neural pathways, kind of like muscle fibers, the more you use them, the better you get at it. And you can use them so much that you can have activities and habits that become automated. And at that point, that's an, that's an advantage to you in terms of living life because you don't need to spend any effort doing that thing. It's like, I'm going to have a bit of a brag here. As in, something I'm an expert at, Nikki. I am an expert at walking. I've been, I've been walking. Congratulations. I know, right? I've been walking my entire life. I'm bloody great at it. If I wanted, I could just stand up right now and just walk over to the other side of the room. No problems at all. I didn't have to think about it. But if I did try and think about it and I tried to teach you the skill of walking, I don't even know what I'd say. I'd say something like, well, how do I do it? I pick up my leg and then I I move it forward and then I, I step on it. And then I do the same with the other leg. You can be pretty good at something, have no idea about how you're doing it because those neural pathways become so strong that you're not even conscious about it. And that's good and bad. That's good because it means you can learn stuff and get automated at it. And it's potentially a problem because you can learn stuff that's not helpful for you and then you can default to that. And so if you imagine that an event occurs, that event occurs and then you've, you've got the way that you normally respond to these things, which may not be the, the way that you would choose to respond but you just default to it. And that's, so that's like a, a well-traveled road. It's really easy to drive down that. So you just default to it. But if you wanted, you could perhaps cross the Amazon jungle. You could chop your way through there, right? And so, but that's a lot of, a lot of effort. And so if you're not highly conscious of it, you're probably not going to do that. You're just going to default. But if you are highly conscious about it, if you're thinking about it, then you, you make your way through and it takes forever and it's really hard work, but you keep working at it. And so eventually you you make a track, you make a trail, you make a little dirt road, you make a well-paved road, eventually you make a double lane highway. Then what happens when this event or situation occurs, you default to that double lane highway and you've literally rewired your brain. The thing about neural pathways though, is that if you want to strengthen them, what's important is frequency, not how long you do something for. And so trying to bring this back to the prior point, what this means is that if you want to change the way that you are and that you interact with the world, and this applies for any change, that you need to do what it is that you're doing frequently. So if we want to start to default to the parasympathetic nervous system, that's not because you don't want to be able to get into the stress mode and get stuff done because that's very, very useful, but you just don't want to default to it. And that's the problem for a lot of us. But if you want to get into that parasympathetic, then you need to practice it frequently. And the frequency is way more important than how long you're doing something for. So if I can, I can imagine some of your listeners are, are resonating in that, you know, I'm incredibly stressed out and I've got a lot of things going on. And, but this all sounds like a lot of hard work. Well, money back guarantee if I'm wrong on this. If you conceptually sever connections with all of the, the people that you know in the world, sell all of your worldly possessions and uh, go off to Bhutan and sit in a cave and meditate for 10 years, for 10 hours a day, then I guarantee you the person you are in 10 years will be different to the person you are now. And there will not be any particular point where the change is really obvious where it's like, oh, this was the person I was. And then this is the person that I am now. It'll be a very, very gradual thing. And so 
that is a way of changing yourself dramatically, but you really don't need to do that. You don't need to be meditating for 10 hours a day. Better than to meditate for, say, three hours would be to meditate for one hour twice daily. Better than that would be to meditate for 15 minutes three times. And then better than that, um, just do five minutes and then like four or five times. And you can keep going all the way down to there until you get to what I think is the most simplest incarnation of getting back into the parasympathetic. Now, bear in mind, this isn't magic. This isn't the correct way to do it. It's just a thing that I find works for many people and that you can give a, have a crack at it. And if it doesn't work for you, chuck it out, find something that works that's better, but it's breathing. It's the basic, the most basic of basics. And there's a breathing technique that I like called four, seven, eight, dead simple. In, breathe in through the nose for four, hold the breath for seven, and then breathe out for, through the mouth for eight, four, seven, eight. Now that's a 19 second breath cycle, which is three times a minute. I guarantee you there's no way you are running away from a lion breathing three times a minute. So what that says to the body is, hey, you're probably okay here. And you're paying attention to this weird breathing technique. And so you're tuning out from all the stuff that was going in on in your mind and you're paying attention to the body. And so what I tend to find is that it's very hard to make an excuse for, oh yeah, I didn't have time to do 19 seconds worth of breathing. Whereas it's pretty easy to make an excuse with, oh, I couldn't find my 45 minutes to do my yoga. And so what neuroplasticity says is just do it frequently. So find a way that grounds you, check in with the body, become aware. You can use breathing until you find something that's better and then do it multiple times in the day. And so one tip that I have, a little little hack for that, is to make, make use of a concept called anchoring. Or, and it's, it's taking something that you want to do and then attaching it to something that you're already doing. You don't need to remember that thing that you're already doing because you're already doing it. Now you just have a little add-on. And so if you want to do breathing or ground yourself um, five or ten times a day, then find something that you're doing five or 10 times a day and anchor it to that. My first recommendation would be when you go to the bathroom, because you're probably going to be going to the bathroom tomorrow and in 20 years, and you're going to be doing that five or 10 times a day. You've always got 20 seconds and, um, and you just mostly, unless you've got little, little toddlers, mostly you're doing it alone. Um, and so you, it's, you can just make that a habit. And then, so what that means is that every time you go to the bathroom, you check in with yourself and you start to come down and get into the parasympathetic. But the key with it is to not be outcome attached. If you go into it looking for, oh, I'm going to do this breathing technique so that I can be not stressed now, well, great. If it, if it, if it works as a tool to do that, that's great. But from my perspective, that's not the point. The point of it is to just do a rep. It's like you're in the gym. You do, you do a bunch of push-ups and you don't look at yourself and go, whoa, have my muscles grown? You just know that you've used them and because you've used them, then you'll get the benefits later. Same thing applies with making efforts to be in the parasympathetic. Do your breathing. Don't be outcome attached. Just be process focused. Yep. Did my 10 reps today. And then over a period of weeks and months, what you'll find is that that effort starts to spill out into your life and then you change the balance and then it becomes even easier to recognize that you need to check in with yourself. But again, it's not the not the 478 that's magic. It's just invest time in the parasympathetic. And so whatever works, some people it's being mindful while they're walking. Some people it's doing um, mindfulness apps. Some people it's movement stuff, qigong or yoga or tai chi or, or, or whatever. It doesn't matter. Just invest time in doing it. 
and then your body will prioritize it. And then it be- progressively becomes who you are. Um, and then your perspective on, on life will change. And you'll find that the things that you used to get worked up about, you don't default to as much because you've rewired the way the brain works. Ah, that tip is gold. I love that because can you find 19 seconds? Yes, you can. You can. (laughs) You've got 19 seconds, right? (laughs) Yes. Yes. Very tricky to dispute that one. Um, and I love, I love your reflection on the practice and it's, it's worth noting, you know, coming back to what you said about meditation. So one of the myths is that you have to be good at meditation for it to be effective. And it's just like the breathing technique Jabe talked about. It's a practice. So it's really worth shifting your mindset around any of these calming techniques around you. You're not, you don't need to be an expert. You just need to practice. You know, your kid doesn't fall over when they're trying to walk. And you go, oh, they fall, they're never going to be any good at walking. Or you try and learn to ride a bike and you fall off and you go, oh, well, I'll never do it again. It's just, that's just the way people learn. And as you spend more and more time doing it, you tend to get better at it. But that wasn't the point anyway. The point of riding a bike isn't to be great at riding a bike. It's because it's a pretty neat thing to be able to do and you have a great time while, you, while you're doing it and you get some benefit from it. It's just, you just keep doing the thing you keep getting the benefit. Do the thing that the person that you want to be would do, then you end up being that person. Exactly. And it's interesting, isn't it? Why, you know, at what age did we become so impatient around the learning curve? Yeah. And and why are we defaulting to to living in the in the in the world where we're constantly inhabiting the sympathetic nervous system? I mean, for, for me, I, I think maybe a lot of people can resonate with this. It's kind of imagine you're back in in grade one or in prep. And um, you're just gazing out the window. You're looking at the leaves and you're just watching the patterns on the bark and everything's fine. And then Mrs. Johnson comes along and whacks, whacks your desk, desk and she says, Nikki Smith, pay attention. And you're like, oh, right, yep, yeah, right. It's all very important. Yes, yes, yes. Life's all about this. Um, be, yeah, right, yep. Yeah, it's all, yep, yeah, very important stuff. And what basically happened was she just said, stop meditating. Right, and the world basically rewards um, living in an unsustainable way, and I don't mean that environmentally, although that's true as well. Um, I mean in terms of uh, um, metabolically and, uh, and and health-wise, and I think that happens from a very early age, and just because of the sort of the society we inhabit and and what we value, we value achievement and and success and. Um, the sad part about it is that actually as you inhabit your body more and you are able to come to terms with, with stress and stress hormones and, and, and get back into your body is that you'll actually get a better response out of yourself. You'll, you'll perform better cognitively. You'll have more energy. You'll just have a better life. There's almost no downside to it other than that it's unfamiliar and we don't like learning things that are unfamiliar. And, um, Initially anyway, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, it's, <laughs> yeah. 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 And I think it's it is the unlearning of the badge of business as well, isn't it? So uh, busyness. Yeah. yeah. Can we talk about the, that? People use the word busy. There's a yeah. badge of business, which is a badge of honor. And I look. I think things are shifting a bit, but I do find it fascinating how it's become a common question. Are well, you it's, busy? It's, it's, as in, is that as it as in that's a good thing? Yeah, or you know, hey Nikki, how you doing? What have you been up to? Oh yeah, I've been busy, busy. Oh yeah, good, great, great, great. What have you mm. been doing, Jab? Oh, not much. Just kind of being a little bit, 
lazy? Oh, what's wrong with him? What's what, what, what's, what's, what's going on? There's something something not quite right there. Why is that? Why is that the way that it is? I think that's that's madness. Yeah. So as you said, so many aspects of society institutionalize us to think that way. And it is really fun to mix up the language around it and see how people react. And it's funny, the word busy, I actually feel like I get a cortisol response when I just hear the word busy. I'm very anti that word. And so I've been experimenting with different words like life is full and great just to change that that anchor point. I don't have a good answer for that. It's um, more of a commentary on on what it is that people value, and so I just tend to, you know, say very, very, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm very well, thank you, um, and uh, and that's it. But the busy thing, I yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the right answer is that because, you know, full life is kind of part of part of problem too, right? It's like you want to feel uh, fulfilled, well, maybe. As long as it's by choice, like you said, it's your yeah. choice. The other thing. I've been sharing with clients and you used it before the resting hard, you know, yeah. so if, if these yeah. high achievers need some kind of feedback loop that it's, it's strong, then rest, rest strongly or rest in a hard way. <laughs> and yeah. actually a client shared that with me today. She said, I'm, I do rest hard now. And I went, wow, it's come back to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, look, I, I think that that is a good answer. And like, so I tend to have two kind of different types of patients in clinic. I've got the patients where things are, are wrong with them, with their health, where their body's betraying them and just things aren't working. And they've gone and they've seen this person and that person and this specialist and they arrive at me and it's kind of like, all right, I desperately need to, to fix this thing. And so they're away motivated patients. I have this thing and I want that thing to go away. And I have another category of patients, which are the toward motivated patients. They're the ones who I want to know how that I can get more out of my my life and my health. And a lot of them tend to be entrepreneurs and, and C-suite type people. But, and not always. There are you know optimizers um, for, for in, in other realms of life. And they want to know how to get more. And then the answer usually is to figure out how to rest hard and how to bring life into balance. And inevitably, the thing that most people are getting wrong, and I think that this would, if you're looking for the details of health stuff, I think that the biggest factor that in the modern world goes unlooked at is sleep. I think that's more of an issue for most people than the nutrition or their movement. It's it's sleep because sleep is the that very- That is fascinating. Well, it's, it's the manifestation of your parasympathetic nervous system. That makes sense. It's you're doing all of your healing, all of your repairing, all of your. I'm being, you know, I'm obviously being a little bit um, hyperbolic, um, a bit, a bit of hyperbole there. Um, but you do detoxification, and that's when your body's fixing everything up. So if you want to be doing better, uh, get more sleep. And everyone likes to think that that they can get by on not much sleep. And so I don't remember the exact numbers. So a little bit of creative license here, but it'll be pretty close. Um, I think there's one genetic type that can get away with getting less sleep. And so for those people, they can sleep for about, I think it's six hours and 12 minutes, but again, I could be a little bit off um, and they do just fine. And for the vast majority of the population, it's eight hours. And everyone likes to think that, oh, I'm probably in that genetic type because I only get six and I do fine. And actually, statistically speaking, you're more likely to have been struck by lightning than you are to be that genetic type. And I don't know about you, but I don't know a single person who's been struck by lightning. I don't know, <laughs> I don't know a lot of people who think they can get by without six hours, but it turns out with sleep, what happens, and I think this is an evolutionary adaptation, is that we become blind objectively to whether or not we've slept adequately. And so 
the way that you can know this is true is that if you consistently sleep your eight hours and then you have a couple of nights in a row where you only sleep six, then you can observe the difference in your performance and your mood regulation and your energy and cognition and all the rest of it. You can observe that. But if you consistently sleep six hours, you become completely blind to that. That becomes your new norm and you've got nothing to reference it against. And so you've got no idea. I think evolutionarily that makes sense. Like if, you, if you're unable to, to get more than six hours, well, you're far better to not be constantly complaining and, and worrying about it and to just, just get on with life. But probably you would not have chosen to not get much sleep. That probably would have been inflicted upon you. Whereas realistically in today's world, we choose it. And it's, I think that's the single biggest factor. And, you know, obviously health is a lot more complex than that, but that'd be the one that you want to look at. And sleep starts not just from when you go to bed, it's how you go to bed, how long it takes you to get to sleep, what's the quality of your rest and all the rest of it. And it ends up again, coming down to being in the parasympathetic nervous system and, 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 and not doing that, oh, I can't get to sleep because my mind is wired. Well, learn to be able to calm that, get the sleep, you'll do better. It's just, you got to practice it. You got to be disciplined. You've got to get your sleep hygiene happening. You need to prioritize it. And that means usually saying no to one or two things. That means going to bed and not watching that Netflix show that you really want to watch or getting up watch a little one bit one episode, but not five. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> if you Google sleep hygiene, you'll, you'll get all the tip sheets online. Yeah. There's lots of them. Yeah. And I, I like the idea that what if you view your day as starting at the night before sleep? I love that tip. Ooh, yeah. That's yeah. a Ross fit tip. Love nice that one. one, Ross. Nice. I like it. I, uh, and actually, okay. I just did a mini experiment accidentally of what you oh. just said. So, so Jabe and Ross are two of my favorite health people. So Ross from Ross fit. Yeah. He's, I've got been doing eight hours sleep many, many nights, um, mm. most nights. And the mm. last two nights I had six and I do feel dramatically different. Kind yeah. of gross. Yeah, my way that you can see it quite clearly is if you've got kids, and when they get tired, their ability to regulate their mood just goes way out the window. And you, as a parent, yeah. you can just look at you can just look at another parent and just kind of you get that knowing look, nod their head, right? But as adults, yeah. we're kind of like, no, it really is a big thing that someone took my something out of the fridge or whatever it is that's going mm. on. It's uh, staring us right in the face. It is. It is. I love that. Let's dive into what your strengths are and what have you discovered about leveraging your strengths in your business. My strengths are in, in being able to think things through strategically and look at things from a, always from a bigger picture um, and being able to step back. And so that only applies if I'm able to get out of my own way and my, it's, it's that whole kind of work on the business instead of in it. And I can't work in the business when I'm constantly chasing my tail, trying to deal with the thing that's in front of me. I need to step back from that. And so the thing that allows me to do that is delegation. If I don't delegate, then I just end up working really hard and end up being the person I'm advising everyone not to be. But if I can step back and have a good think about things, and look, and maybe this isn't a particular strength of mine because I think a lot of people, maybe all of us do better when we are able to step back, but the difference, I can see the difference in my business and my life when I've had reflection space. And I've been able to think about what it is that we're doing and are we actually doing it in the right way or are we doing that just because we happened upon it? And then from that, make change. And then if we're constantly doing that, all those small changes compound. And this, I suppose, come back to the, the mini experiments thing. And, and for me, mini experiments are 
actually just the way that things should just should be done as you just should always be trying something new and challenging what it is that you think that you know to find out if it's true or if there's a better way to be doing it. I'm completely unattached to all of the things that we are doing. They just happen to be the way that we're doing and they're the best thing that we can come up with now. But if we can come up with a better way to be doing it, well, then we owe it to ourselves and our patients to be doing that. And that only happens when you can spend some time thinking about those things and doing them differently. And so for me, um, agility, I think, is an important thing for our business, but that requires space. And the way that I get that space is by delegating and including other people in that process where everyone is invited to challenge anything that we are doing and see if we can find a better way to be doing it. Yeah, I love hearing that because for those of you listening in, if you enjoy thinking, we want to play to your strengths for 60 to 80% of your week and build up to that in an iterative way. And that actually means allocating time to think. How cool is that? Absolutely. Like you really need to be doing it. Otherwise, you're just going to be making less good decisions than you would if you had time to think about it. And you'll be drained because you've been doing business as usual stuff. You're potentially getting in an open plan office or an open plan clinic and getting interrupted. But this way, you get to really leverage your strengths and get energized by them. Absolutely. And it, it needs to be said over and over again, unfinding. So thank you. I also see you as being a very strong diagnostician. So what combination of strengths gives you that? My job role is really the same sort of thing as playing detective. When someone comes in with a health condition, the wrong way to do it is, right, here's the symptom, here's the condition, here's what we need to treat. I think in order to do health right, you need to treat not symptoms and conditions, but the patient. And so in order to do that, you need to understand the patient. But then what needs to be done is, is thinking through the case and trying to make the connections between them all. And so I think of that like being a detective. You've got to gather up all of the information then follow the leads where they go. And that relies on being able to hold a lot of data in, um, in the head and then lay it all out and see the connections between them. And that's just something that I've always liked to do. And I think it's understand something in its complexity so that you can then break it down to the simple elements. And the second part that is my gift is being able to break those things down and re-articulate them back to a patient in a way that they can understand and relate to. So instead of me just saying such and such is going on your health, uh, you need to do X. Your mum told you to eat more broccoli when you were young. Did you do it? No. Why? Because you didn't understand why, why it was important or you didn't want to be doing it. And so if you want to get effective change from patients, they've, they've got to be on board. And in order to be on board, they need to understand and be invested in it. And so being able to help them understand why this thing is happening, not just what to do and how it fits in with the rest of the health means they're a lot more likely to follow along with it. Like if I, I can tell someone, go and sleep and, and you'll feel better mm-hmm. and they might do it. But if I can explain, well, this symptom that you're dealing with over here that one is is because your your body hasn't had enough time to be to be working on that process, and that process happens while while you're asleep. And they're like, oh, so my pain is going to go away when I sleep. I'm motivated by my pain. I understand the relationship between the two. I'm more likely to actually follow through on it. And that's kind of my thing. It's being able to explain things back to people after I break it down and, and understand it myself. It just, it just so happens that I do that within the, within the health field, but I think that could probably be applied in a different area. Absolutely. So it sounds like you've got a mixture of thinking strengths and relationship building and developing others' strengths. And there might yeah. be a communication one in there as well. Yeah. Yeah. Somewhere there. I think, do you do or recommend for any of your people, the Clifton Strengths Finder? 
Yeah, so I recommended that to Kate Reardon, who recommended it to you. I'm the well, originator. There you go. You are the originator of that. Mm-hmm. And so Clifton Strengths, I think it was learner, strategy, relator, and then uh, I can't remember. There was another another couple of that. Analytical was another one. And I think competition was in there as well, which was curious. So that makes total strength. Learner means you're just a voracious learner ongoing for life. Strategic thinking you've described in a fair bit of detail, which has been really helpful. Then the relator is that deep connection to people and achieving something together. The analytical one is breaking the big concepts to the smaller concepts and being able to communicate those. And then competition, that's an interesting one. So for a lot of people, it's actually an internal competition. It's not necessarily an external one. I think that one for me is something that I've struggled with in the past. And so at at that time, I I shared my origin story. That period of life allowed me to reimagine myself. And so the person that I was before then, the person that I was after was quite dramatically different. And so I'd been quite antagonistic and competitive. And so in retrospect, she was totally right to break up with me. I was a bit of a dick, if I'm being honest. And I was quite competitive. So I'd want to win an argument just for the sake of, of, of winning. And it was just kind of walking all over people's emotions and not, not reading the room at all. Since I've changed, I've viewed competition as a bad thing. And so I think that that ended up perhaps creating conflict avoidance. And so I swung too far the other way. Sure. And so when I got that competition thing on Clifton Strengths, I tried to think about that and, and, and what that means and whether it is a bad thing. And I don't think that it is, but I had an instance six months ago where um, this person will never know that I had someone intruding in onto our SEO space. Uh, So SEO is search engine optimization. And so a lot of business, well, for us, it's critical where we're coming up organically for for Google and someone started to intrude into it. And all of a sudden, my my motivation just went through the roof. It's kind of like, no, right now we're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And I didn't hurt that other person through competition, but that allowed me to to motivate myself, and so that that competition in that case, I, I think was I think was useful and, and good. So I'm kind of learning to embrace it again, Nikki. That's good to hear because essentially we want to find a sweet spot in every strength that we have. And for you, it sounds like it's a big drive for motivation and continuous improvement if you combine it with the learner and the strategic thinking. So there are tons of benefits to it. Yeah. And like you said, it's about finding that sweet spot and not necessarily damaging others. On the yeah. Way. yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think you're right about the competition with yourself. Thing as well. It's kind of like, I want to learn something until I've learned enough about it and then move on to the next thing, right? Because it's not, the challenge is gone. And I think it's, it's really important for those of you who suspect or know you've got the competition or significant strength, those ones, it's really important to deep dive and understand them because you can view them negatively really easily. And they've definitely got shiny golden positive sides to them as well. I would say, by the way, so thank you to Kate. And so and by extension, thank you to you. That Clifton Strengths has been the most useful psychometric for us to run on our staff. So what we do now is is we have a staff user manual. So when you buy a microwave or a in our VCR, no one's buying VCRs these times. So these days, Jay, get on with it. You have a manual for how to use this thing that you've bought, right? But when it comes to people, there's no manual. You learn through making mistakes. But we found that the Clifton Strengths, once we can understand the staff, then we use that and a couple of other psychometrics. And we made a document, which is like the how to drive Jabe, that the user guide for Jabe. It's kind of like Jabe responds really well when you just say things directly and you challenge him and he'll often go rambling about, but that's how he thinks. And so don't think that he's ignoring you. And then so for my other staff members, it's this person values focused time and this person needs to have people around. And we found 
found that Clifton Strengths to be instrumental mm-hmm. in being able to effectively interact with each other. And for me, in terms of how to leverage staff strengths, someone's got a strength and they can they can play with something and someone else is doing a job role where they don't have that strength. That's just, that doesn't make any sense. Thank you, Clifton Strengths Finder. Oh, absolutely. And all you managers out there? For get me. on it. Yeah, get on it. Don't hesitate. And also, I even think, get your partner to do it. I have a lot more compassion for my partner knowing what his strengths are. So I go in with the big, here's the dream, here's the exciting idea. And he's got strategic thinking strength. He wants data facts. He wants to see pathways. He wants to risk assess. So I now know that I go in with a light touch asking what information he needs and then go get excited with someone else. <laughs> <laughs> and recognize that he's not just putting on the dra- on the brakes to be a downer. Exactly. Um, yeah, 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 it's great. It's thinking process, yeah. Yeah, yeah, great. And then if I if I really want an excited response, so that could be great if you had it in you, it'd be great to get it. But if you yeah. can't, I'll go to someone else. That's yeah. fine. Yeah, yeah. Love it. Just one example. Oh, that's fantastic to hear. That's such success for your team around it. Imagine being in a workplace where there's a user guide for you. Yeah. Oh, you, know, you know, the other one that was really useful as well and mm. uh, continues to be useful is languages of appreciation, which is based, I think it's a, a modification of the old languages of love, mm. um, which is to help you understand your partner, but languages of uh, appreciation in the workplace. And so to know this person doesn't value words of affirmation at all. Actually, they want gifts and this person, don't give them a gift. They don't value it all. They want quality time. That's been really important for me to understand why some of my staff want to come and just take time uh, talking. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Just hang out. It's kind of, instead of that being an intrusion and I could be getting stuff done, it's like, I am meeting this person's need for quality time. That's been very, very helpful. Yes. If you want to be strategic and caring and yet efficient, it's another great tool. Absolutely. The alternative is potentially you shower someone with your appreciation language. It doesn't mean anything to them. Yes, 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 yes. That was been my mistake for years. And you're like, why, why don't they feel appreciated? And why are people giving me gifts? I don't don't care about this. Don't don't give me that. Now I have to pass it on to someone else. I don't want it. I hadn't heard that they'd adjusted that for the workplace. Because that doesn't yeah. make sense. Because you're well, like, team, I want you to do the love languages test. And they're like, oh, my God. But the appreciation I, I, test, yeah, awesome. Yeah, I had a staff member who told me it was weird. She's like, it's, <laughs> this is really weird talking about how I want love. And I was like, yeah, fair point. It turns out it was just a quick Google. <laughs> so. Perfect. You found a solution. Perfect. So I'd love to hear, did you ever have a a negative self-talk aspect or something that got in the way that you needed to learn to overcome and what was it and how did you overcome it? I haven't been that plagued by a negative self-talk. Not since the breakup? Not really. I don't know. I I, I tend to have a level of confidence that is probably, uh, you know, not always deserved. And (laughs) I tend to, that tends to be more the side that I err on than, than the other. And so I haven't had too many instances of that, but I, what I have noticed over the years is, is I go through peaks and troughs of in terms of where my motivation and enthusiasm um, comes from and what I've noticed. And, and I don't, um, this is absolutely not the, the right way to go. It's just a self-reflection thing is that I'll tend to sort of get to what is a low point for me and then that'll be a bounce and then things will go and they'll, and they'll, and they'll go really well. And this plays out over years more so than, the, um, than days. And then things um, go up and, and they go 
and they go really, really well. And then I kind of, things are going so well that I take my foot off the gas and I just kind of chill out too much until that happens a bit too much. And then that kind of bounces up and down like that. I now just have faith that if things aren't going well, they will You just keep going. You're doing the, doing the right thing. And then if things do get to the bottom, then all of a sudden my creative brain kicks in and, and off and off we go again. But I don't know that there's a much of a relevant learning point for, for many people there. Well, it sounds like a, it's a choice around mindset around not only trust, but resetting. It sounds like that yeah. if, yeah, if you, if it's down on the curve, then you reset and trust, but you also take action. Well, I suppose there is one other thing on that, actually. It's given that I know that that's how I work. What is useful is to take time out from my norm so that I can engage that side of the brain. And so that means protracted breaks. And so that doesn't always mean traveling. One of the things that we try and do each year, and we're not always successful, is we do a hibernation week which is where we stay at home and we buy a week's worth of food and then we turn off all of our tech devices. We unplug them all, unplug the router. We turn off the clocks. We disconnect our, our phones, so pull the battery out and go zero tech for a week. Well, actually, there's one exception. I, I do permit an e-reader because reading books is nice. And that process... I always find I come out very different to the way that I went in and my perspective changes. And then there's a lot of, well, I think boredom sparks creativity. Absolutely. And you know what? That's probably even a bigger conversation is that I think that we have an unhealthy need for avoidance of being bored. Like somehow being bored is wrong, but I think that- Boredom boredom is the gateway to creativity. Yeah, I reckon right there. I reckon that's it. And we just, it's so easy to not be bored in today's world because there's you know, this edutainment and ed- entertainment at your finger all of the time. It's, you have to intentionally work to be bored. Absolutely. Uh, you should see my kids and their eye rolling when I mention this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can you imagine? Yeah. Boredom yeah, is the gateway to creativity, kids. They're like, oh, but it's true. My kids, my kids, uh, every now and then they've, they've snuck out that uh, I'm bored and I haven't had that sort of the, the gateway to creativity response, but my response is great. How wonderful. You're bored. Excellent. Let's see what you come up with. And uh, I don't think they bother telling me they're bored anymore. They probably just learned to avoid dad. Um, when <laughs> well, they know that you're just going to say, go figure something out and they do. Yeah. yeah. Any positive response about the boredom is normal, I think is, is the way to go. You know, the other thing about it, is I think that comes back to sleep again as well. So imagine you go back. It all comes down to sleep, Jen. It all comes back Everything to sleep. Everything comes down to sleep. So so much goodness today. Thank you, Jabe. Last up, what I would love for you to do is identify some an invitation so people listening in on actions they could choose to take moving forward. If you can learn to listen to your body, it's telling you what's going on. We're just accustomed to using our brains instead of listening to our body. I'd encourage you to to try and think about your health as being a balance of four key factors. It's actually five. We'll talk about four. Uh, (laughs) So think about the four pillars of health as being kind of like the legs of a chair. And if you're sitting on a chair, what you want is all of those legs of of that chair to be balanced and stable. And they have to be consistent with each other and are independently strong. And so the four pillars are eat, so that's your diet, sleep, we spoke about that, move, exercise, and de-stress. And we've spoken about that. And to have a look and try and be honest with yourself about how you're doing in each of these areas. And so look at your diet. Is it what it 
should be? Is it what it could be? Does it need to be improved more? Look at sleep, look at movement, look at de-stress. And if you're like most people, what you'll find is that you have an, an undue level of focus on one or two of those areas. And so for most people, when they get sick, it's uh, the path to my recovery is going to be through food because that's how I've improved my, I've changed my health in the past or movement. And if I'm not getting the results that I want, then that's just because I need the next new diet, like getting a 5% change in your diet and getting that, squeezing that last little bit out of it is going to make an 80% difference to your health. It's probably not. Probably means you've been looking in the wrong place. So my challenge is for you to try and look at your health as objectively as you can, given that it's a subjective thing and see where the balance gap is. And so if you're a carpenter and you're fixing this chair and there's two pretty wobbly legs and two stable ones, well, the way you fix it isn't by reinforcing the ones that are already stable. It's by looking at the ones that are wobbly. And so for most people, that's going to come down to sleep and the de-stress area. And then if you look at your health in that way and just acknowledge where your gaps really are, then it's a lot easier to take action. And so a little bit of introspection and uh, look at your health, try and create balance. When you create balance for your body, you're going to do a lot better. And Jabe, where can people find you if they want to ask you a question or find out about your services? So you can find us at Melbourne Functional Medicine. You can just Google it and we'll pop up. But if you want to go to the website, melbournefunctionalmedicine.com.au and our Instagram is melbournefxmed, melbournefxmed. And I believe you offer remote sessions as well, virtual sessions. Well, this this uh, this COVID world means that people, I think, we've we've gotten over our fear of doing things um, remote, and so yeah, I think there's a lot of people who just don't even want to come into the office anymore. We're <laughs> just doing a lot of stuff by phone, and I think it's I think it's been a great, it's been a good thing that we've had this come out of it. So yeah, we've got patients from all over the world in uh, all the different states of Australia. So yeah, excellent. Thanks again, Jabe, and we'll talk again soon. Absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on, Nikki. Love your work. Thanks, Jabe. Bye for now. Thanks for listening. If you want to hear more stories like this one, please subscribe. And if you're ready to uncover what's ultimately next for you, whether it's your next role or your dream role, please go to my website, www.nikkismithcoach.com and there you can sign up for a free online webinar workshop or you can reach out to me via the contact form. And if you loved what you heard, please leave a five-star review. I'd love to read what you enjoyed most about the episode. I'll talk to you soon.